Well, thanks for being here this morning. I'm excited and not excited about proceeding with this little mini-series series within the context of Matthew, 8, uh, Matthew 19. <clears throat> you remember where we are. We're traveling through the gospel according to Matthew. And we've just finished in chapter 18 the fourth long discourse or sermon. There are five major sermons in Matthew. And so before we get into the fifth and final sermon, we're in chapter 19 and 20 and 21 and 22. And in chapter 19, the Pharisees who have been continually picking on Jesus, looking for an excuse, an opportunity to trick him up, to cause him to say something that would reveal that he's not really the Messiah, that he is, in fact, an imposter, a charlatan. Or, if they really do believe that he is the Messiah, and there is evidence that some of these men understood that this is the Messiah, they were of the heart to reject him and get rid of him. We will not have this man rule over us. And so they come to Jesus and quoting essentially from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, they asked Jesus concerning the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage, essentially. Their purpose is not because they're so concerned about the law and the integrity and wanting to know the truth. Again, their purpose is to find a way to undermine Jesus' teaching, to reveal that Jesus' teaching is actually contrary to the law of Moses. Because you remember, Jesus has been undoing the traditions of men, the traditions that had developed over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years pertaining to the law that was given to Moses in Exodus and in Deuteronomy and actually in Leviticus also. And so they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now, without going back into the last lesson, Jesus' response here is interesting. And it's telling. You see, if someone comes to me and asks me, do you believe in same-sex marriage? I'm not going to tell them yes or no. I'm not going to say that. And it's not because I am shy, although I am shy and quiet and unassuming. I am not going to give them my opinion because my opinion isn't worth diddly squat. I'm going to say this, Charlie. I believe what the Bible says. All of a sudden, what does that do? That catapults the entire conversation away from me. Into the face of God himself. 
Now they have to face God. And you never want folks to have to face you. Because when they face us, they win, we lose. You understand the context that I'm talking about. Do you believe in same-sex marriage? Daniel, I believe what the Bible says. Then you proceed from there and you maintain your stance in such a way and your conversation in such a way that what they have to do to find out is to discover on their own what does the Bible say? What does it say? And let them argue with God. And so, just as an aside, as we find ourselves clashing, hopefully not because we're mean as snakes, but hopefully because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and the righteousness of God that is in us because we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ and that righteousness is exuding out from us the presence of God in people's, to people's lives. And they're being confronted by that in us. And that's what they're confronting and that's what they're having to deal with. So Jesus' answer is interesting. He doesn't say, well, let me, let me give you my opinion here. James, let me tell you what I think here. What does he do? How does he answer them? He immediately sends them back, and this is a regular thing with Jesus. Have you not read? Have you not read what the Scriptures say? So Jesus is saying, I believe what the Bible teaches I'm just going to tell you what the Bible teaches and allow you to be confronted by the Spirit of God rather than arguing with me over my opinion. And so he sends them to the Scriptures. Now, there are many reasons why I really love the way Jesus teaches. But this morning will be a pretty good revelation of one of the main reasons why I love Jesus' teaching. Where does he send them to find out about marriage? He could have sent them to Exodus. He could have sent them to Leviticus. He could have sent them, really, to Deuteronomy. He could have said, well, let's go back to Deuteronomy and let's look at this and let's understand what is happening here. Let's understand the context. Let's understand. Where does he send them? He quotes two verses from Genesis. He quotes verse 27, chapter 1, and verse 24, chapter 2. Now, why does he do this? Why does he do it? Well, let's ask this question. Think about your house. Your building. Oh, by the way, did any of you watch the construction of this building? How many of you were here watching the construction? Do you remember for months... And months, the amount of digging and the, what do you call those long things they put in the ground? The pilings, 
Some of them, I think, were, I think they failed at like 60 or 80 feet. I mean, these things, and then the concrete, the enormous amount of concrete. This is an enormous, and then the tie rods and all of these big clamps put in here. So the concrete is in the ground, and then they clamp these big old clamps, and they pour other concrete on top of that. That, well, the building cannot kind of float away. I mean, it was an incredible, why in the world did they spend so much time and energy and money? Why was the most essential aspect of the building the foundation? What is the most essential aspect of a house? The foundation. You know, when you're looking at a house to buy, and Steve Zeringer can tell us a lot about this, I think there are a couple of obvious things you look at first. You try to assess, is it sitting on a good, firm foundation? Now, if the windows are bent and all the doors are bent and all like that kind of thing, you realize there's something wrong where? On the roof or below ground? It's a foundational problem. So my thought is, I always wanted to see what the foundation looked like and what the roof looked like. Those two things. I think a lot of stuff in between can be taken care of pretty easily unless the whole thing is riddled with termites and you sneeze and the whole thing falls apart. Why Genesis? You see, because Genesis is the foundation And I'm going to emphasize this, and I've done it before. This is nothing new for those of you who've been here before. But it is very telling and weakening to believers if we have not seen the way God gives forth his revelation. He begins in Genesis because the word Genesis obviously means beginning. And so if we want to know what the entire Bible is about and God's purpose and God himself, we must begin where God begins in the beginning. And so specifically, in general, Genesis is the foundation, but specifically, specifically, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, those three legs, if you would, on top of those three legs sat the entire Bible. Everything about the Bible, everything about the history of humanity, everything about what is going to happen, what is happening, and what has happened, the reason and the accomplishment and all, everything about it is found in these first three chapters. These are the most essential chapters to the Bible without which we are fuzzy, to say the least. And so in these three chapters is set forth, number one, the beginning of God's self-revelation. If you were to ask me, what is the most breathtaking and astounding and significant verse in the entire Bible, I would not tell you that Jesus loves us. I would not tell you that Jesus died to save us because those verses are the consequence of something else, a revelation and an outworking of something else. To me, just to me, the most astounding and breathtaking verse in the entire Bible is this verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. 
Think about it. I, I hope we get past this this morning. But if we don't, it's okay. You'll forgive me if I don't get too far. Think about it. Stop for a moment. Eternity. Nothing exists except there is a divine being who always has been, who is, and who always will be. And this divine being, whom we call God, is of such nature, and we'll see this in a few minutes, in more detail next week, that he exists as a community of three distinct, divine, and equal persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And in this community of God, there is an eternal fellowship of love, of satisfaction, of peace, of joy. That we find that God is in himself joyful about himself. That God is in himself at peace. That God is fully and forever satisfied and well pleased with himself. In himself. That there is in this God a perfect eternal fellowship requiring needing nothing no one at all to any extent beyond himself or outside of himself because within himself he is complete he needs nothing or no one So be careful when you hear preachers say, God needs you. That's not true. God may want you, but he certainly don't need you, honey child. God needs no one because he is absolutely self-sufficient within himself among the three persons of the Godhead. So here we are in eternity before the creation. There's nothing. There's nothing. Nothing. There ain't little something there that God can kind of on and it blows up and it creates the... There's nothing there. There's not even a universe. Because the universe is a created thing. So have we given ourselves yet a headache? You know, remember that excedrin headache that we used to think of here on TV? There's only this God. Perfect fellowship. Perfect relationship. Perfect love. Perfect peace. Joy. 
satisfaction, contentment. And then we read these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To me, this is the most astounding revelation about God that I understand. That within this perfect community, God, knowing ahead of time, knowing ahead of time what the consequences would be to him, but also knowing what the joy will be to him. He creates. And in that creation, I believe we see the clear demonstration of what the love of God is all about. And when I say the love of God, I understand the Bible says God is love. Remember that? Somebody said that somewhere to someone. 1 John 4, 8. We see what the love of God is all about. It is absolutely other-oriented. God's love is such that his driving passion is to create a people with whom and in whom and through whom he will share himself at the very highest cost to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. This is the quintessential selflessness, the self-givingness of our God. And so what I'll often say is rather than just say the love of God, to in order to differentiate it from the fallen, corrupt, sin-laden love of people which we, with which we are all born and the love that we function in in the natural I will say this, rather than saying the love of God regularly, I will often say God's kind of love to make it different. Standing apart and opposed to our kind of love. For don't you know that when we are saved, God did not save us to make us love one another better. He did not save us to improve our love and develop our love. He saved us in order to replace our love brick by brick, stone by stone, activity by activity, thought by thought, deed by deed, word by word, motive by motive to replace our corrupt, self-centered love with his absolute, pure, self-giving love, which too will never be able to even come within an eternity of one another. And so God's great work is to be in the process of replacing our natural love with his divine love.
Can you say amen? That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8, 29. So let us make sure that as we begin, and I'm way ahead of myself, but I don't apologize for it. This is just what you get when you get me. Let us make sure that as we live our lives in Christ for the glory of God, we are not asking God to improve my love, but to replace my love with his own love, his kind of love. Because you don't want a Peter Davison is just better able to love. It's corrupt. All I can do is give you a greater amount of selfishness. What are we talking about? The whole issue here as a sidebar from Genesis, uh, Matthew 19, it has to do with marriage. And what I've just said, husbands, wives, and singles. Did I leave anybody out? Charles, did I get you on that one? Yeah. What I've just said about the love of God, this is in a nutshell... what the Christian marriage is to be. That kind of love. And the only way that kind of love develops in me is through the application by the Spirit of the power of the death of Christ to my natural love. And process by process, bit by bit, activity by bit, the resurrection or the recreation of what is my natural, flawed, corrupt love into the newness in me of God's kind of love. Do you see that? And so I want this morning for us to begin even though I don't think I've ever gotten even past the second sentence in the notes, to begin to set sail in this little lagoon that we're going to be taking for the next week or two or three, whatever, concerning the biblical basis for marriage and then the issue of divorce and remarriage. You notice I didn't say the biblical basis for divorce and remarriage. The biblical basis for marriage and then the issue of divorce and remarriage. And to begin to set sail on this sea of God's kind of love. And where do we see the outworking in Genesis 1-1? Where do we see that self-giving love most clearly demonstrated in the history of humanity? At the cross. At the cross. At the cross. Why does Jesus begin in Genesis? Because you see, if we don't begin there, and we don't anchor and enmesh our understanding of God first, and then our understanding of who we are to God and then our understanding of how God is recreating us, having 
crucified our sin in Christ, forgiven us, so now he can begin the process of recreating in us the very God kind of love in me and in you that was exemplified absolutely perfectly in his son by the Holy Spirit. If we don't see that, marriage in particular, because that's the subject, but in general, our life in Christ, in the body of Christ, will more, will more, will more regularly fail under the assaults of self-love and under the, what word don't want, the coming, trying to, you know, that self-love trying to make its way through. I can't find my word right now. You know, controlling me. We will have more regular failure in that than if we begin to understand, wait a minute. God is doing a work here so that when I find my own love being assaulted by the Holy Spirit. Assaulted, Chris, by the Holy Spirit. Assaulted by the Holy Spirit, Steve. Jody, assaulted by the Holy Spirit. Not just smoothed out. Assaulted! Because I need my love to be assaulted. And when that happens, I feel it in my guts in anger and resentment and frustration, and jealousy, and whining, complaining. All of that tells me that whatever is happening, my self-love is being assaulted, and God is in the process of revealing my self-love. And if I will cooperate with him and confess my sin, and go to him and ask for the Holy Spirit's work of repentance and change my mind and submit to him, he will begin to destroy that area of self-love with his own, replacing it with his own kind of love. So no, I'm not called to love my wife better. I'm never called to do that. Never. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. And for God's sake, I don't want my wife to try to love me better. I don't want to. I don't want any part of it. It stinks, both sides. I want to love Jean with God's kind of love. And I want her to receive that. And to be transformed by it. So that even in her then, reciprocally, God's kind of love, having been experienced by her from me through the Holy Spirit, is now at work changing her self-love into the reality of God's kind of love in whatever the category is. And as that happens, husbands and wives begin to function in the reality of their spiritual position as one. One what? One in and by and displaying God's 
kind of love. So in these three chapters, first, it's set forth, number one, the beginning of God's self-revelation. That's all I'm, that's all, that's, that's the way I am right now. Keith won't mind if we miss a sermon this morning, will he? Because we, we need to go to about four o'clock here. The second, what is set forth in these three chapters? The most important thing is, and for the rest of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, and for the rest of the Bible all the way to the end in Revelation 21-22, I put them together because I, I see them as one grand work. Although they're two chapters, okay. For the rest of the Bible and for eternity, there is a passion in God to be self-revelating to us, in us, through us. Isn't that what the Bible's all about? Right? God's self-revelation. Everything is about that. That's God's passion. That we should know him And that he should know us. Not that he needs it. But because of his kind of love. He goes to the greatest extremity. To create and serve those who rebel. Who hate. Who resist. Who corrupted him. His, his, uh, his revelation. And he saves us at the highest price because of his kind of love. So in chapters 3, we see God's purpose of creating humanity. We see how humanity is to fulfill God's purpose. Adam's rejection of God's purpose and God's determination and method to reclaim his original intention. That's what you get. At least those four. There may be others. These are the four that came to my mind, hopefully by the Spirit. But this is what is set forth in the first three chapters of Genesis. That's why it is crucial to know the first three chapters. Get to know them. Read them. Study them. And allow them to underpin everything else in the entire Bible. So I offer this illustration. The very root of the biblical revelation is Genesis 1-1. Out of Genesis 1-1 come these three branches. Genesis 1-2 to the end of chapter, th- uh, uh, chapter 1 and then chapter 2 and chapter 3. Out of the, the, the three branches coming out of the root of the first verse. And then on top of those three, as I said, set the, set the rest of the Bible. Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 22. That's just my thinking on that, if you allow me to do it that way. This is why Jesus answers the question about marriage in Genesis. He wants them to see, listen to me. He wants them to see, listen to me. He wants them to see primarily not marriage but he wants them to see God in the marriage and for the marriage. That's what Jesus is after. You see, we're too quick when we discuss marriage, divorce, remarriage, or other issues in the church. We're too quick to talk about the issue in isolation of the centrality of that issue. The centrality of the issue is God. Can you say amen? Amen. It is God. 
God is always and alone the centrality, the focus, the fulcrum of any and every issue in creation. So Jesus doesn't say, well, let's talk about marriage. He's not going to do it, Gordon, because we will never understand marriage until we go to the foundation. And so he begins where? He begins with God. He begins with God. Failure to understand and appreciate the divine significance for marriage resulted from their failure to understand the scriptural moorings for marriage, which are contained in Genesis 1 and 2. So Jesus quotes 127 and 224 from Genesis. You notice that marriage is not the invention of men. Marriage is not submitted to or the result of or is to in any way be manipulated by and affected by culture. Godly marriage is anchored in the very person, character, and the purpose of God himself. That is what a marriage is all about. And so we begin in Genesis to begin to show this. And I'll come back to some of these. You know how I am. I bounce back and forth. I am kind of repetitive sometimes. I also repeat myself and I'm redundant. Write this down. It may be in the notes. And there are going to be many things I hopefully you will hang on to as a married person or as a single person. As I said, anyone not in one of those categories. Everybody's either married or single. Whether you're single because of divorce or you're single because you ain't ever married or you're single because your spouse has died. Whatever the reason is, you're single or you're married. And here, I think, is one of the most significant and foundational truths about marriage. If you don't have it in your notes, I think Evan put it in there. Uh, I rely so heavily on him. He does such a wonderful job. Always, if you appreciate the notes, it's Evan May. It's Evan May. It's not Peter Davidson. You would not appreciate the notes that I give you. I don't do well in this. It's Evan. But if it's in there, marriage is from God. Is that statement in there? If it is, we're going to have to chastise Evan. Here's the mo- one of the most significant words you're going to hear about marriage. And this pertains to anything in our Bible, uh, in, in the word of, in the church. The choir. The youth program. The seniors. The royal rangers. The elders. Anything. But marriage in particular, since that's what we're dealing with. Marriage is from God. It was not the invention of culture in order to have babies. Obviously, you don't need to be married to have kids. Marriage is from God. Secondly, 
Marriage is about God. And marriage is for God. You must get this. That means this. That when our flesh is assaulted by the enemy to sin. What do I mean by sin in this context? Loving my kind of way. Loving with my kind of love. Responding with my kind of response. Thinking with my kind of thinking. Anytime marriage is assaulted, and believe me, thems of us who have been married more than 10 minutes know that our marriages are continually being assaulted. Right, Liz? Yes. Right, Jean? Jean's asleep. Yes, yes, yes. Jean and I will be married 50 years in April. And let me tell you something. Let me... This has been a most wonderful journey, but it's been assaulted by my kind of love and by Jean's kind of love as the enemy wants to aggravate it and stir it up, right? The most significant concept, understanding, revelation, feeling, whatever you want to call that about marriage. And for those of us who are married and for those who are not married and intend to be married one day, get this down. This is about the integrity and the honor and the glory and the character and the nature and the purpose of God. God has so constituted Christian marriage that he has given us the opportunity to either honor him or do a Romans 8.20, what is it, 4 or 8, 8.24, 8.28, blaspheme his name in marriage. Isn't he amazing that he's given us that opportunity? Somebody look up Romans 2. Is it 24 or 28? Sometimes I think it's 2.24. Because of you, the name of God is blaspheme among the Gentiles. He's quoting from Isaiah. So, I didn't get too far today, but we're going to get into Genesis next time, so you just hold on. But let's begin this way. Let's begin to see something about marriage that we've never seen before. And begin to ask myself, as a husband, begin to ask yourself, as a wife, is what I'm feeling and how I'm acting, is what I want, is where I'm going, is what I'm saying, all of that. Is this from God? Is this about God and for God? Because I'll say this. Whether we like it or not or believe it or not, in a Christian marriage, everything. May I repeat that word? Harrison, may I repeat that word? In a Christian marriage, everything. May I say it one more time? Rose, may I say it one more time? Everything, essentially, is about God. Uh-oh. That's different than what I thought. 
May I say it one more time? Young man, young lady, 10 years from now, mm, you may be married. May I say it one more time? How much? Everything in a Christian marriage is essentially what? About God. About God. I need you to be praying about this little series. I have been teaching since 1962. How many of you are older, old enough to have been born before 1962? Only a few of you. I have had more internal struggles and fears about teaching this than anything I've taught in this class. This is something Satan does not want us to learn. I need your prayers. I have to have, there's, I don't have a guidebook to say next one, next one, next. I have to hear from God, what's next? What's next? And I must hear from God how to share it. And I must have the, if I don't have the anointing of God, I have nothing. If I don't have it, Darlene, I sit down. I will not teach. I can't. So will you pray? Because this is a major issue that the Holy Spirit wants to convey, not only to this class, thankfully for you're here, but to the rest of the church. And may I encourage you to do this. Remember what the Bible says, go out into the field and what? Drag them in. Does it say that, Frank? Right? To compel them. Compel them, right? Doesn't it say compel? Yes, it does. It says compel. Drag them in here. Why? It's about God. And is he worth it? See you next Sunday.